Poya. This is Robbie. Welcome to Uncharted. And thanks for joining us again. Welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted podcast. We've got uh, a really special guest um, joining us today, Greg Sands. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Nice to, nice to see you guys. Likewise. And thanks to David Apple um, over, at, over at Intact for the introduction. We appreciate it, David. Um, so, Greg, the first question we always love to ask is, like, tell us about where your upbringing, like where you grew up, what your parents did, any siblings. I think it was in the Midwest, um, but I, I want to I get the, the kind of scoop from you. Tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, my dad was a, you know, regional lawyer, uh, you know, grew up in, uh, in the, you know, in the city proper. And I'd say the most interesting and exciting thing about that is that we used to, we just got to spend all winter skating on the, on the lake. So we'd go out and drop a puck and play hockey at the, uh, at the local rink outside on the lake. Fast forward a bit, Greg, to um, to your time at, uh, at at Sutter Hill. So prior to founding Coasted Noah, I think you were the managing director at Sutter Hill. Um, Sutter Hill has quite a reputation. There's been a lot of uh, just buzz about you know the the uh, Snowflake IPO and some of the other like recent success. I'd love to maybe just get like an inside look from earlier in your career when you were there at Sutter Hill, like if you could tell us a little bit about um, kind of the, uh, the experience of working there and like maybe what some of the things were that you took with you as you thought about founding your own shop. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's an extraordinary place. And so I was one of, I was one of several uh, managing directors. So that's another term for, for general partners. So there were five when I started, seven when I left. Uh, the firm has had extraordinary run, including Pure Storage and Snowflake and Laceworks seems to be coming up uh, behind it. And I, I actually often say, uh, I tried to take everything from that experience. I mean, the, the, the fundamental principles of intellectual honesty, think for yourself, bottoms up analysis, people focused investing, uh, figuring out how to be an extraordinary board member and long-term partner to founders in ways that are useful, but also don't step on founders' toes because lots of things are actually management discretion, not you know, not board responsibility. Um, acting in ways that have uh, integrity and are thinking about all the actors at all times, right? Uh, invest like it's your own money, as opposed to playing you know, heads or tails with other people's money. And so those I think are really foundational principles and it is the way the firm has always operated. I mean, when I say the firm, I mean Sutter Hill. And so all of that I took with, uh, to me, uh, with me to, to Costa Noa. And then just curious, uh, why did you decide to build your own legacy? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I, I think there, you know, there are always a couple of layers of it, but I think one is, it was so clear that it was less expensive to start a business and yet the big firms were all getting bigger. And so I really wanted to be an enterprise boutique. I wanted to focus on the craft of very early stage companies, not think about putting money to work. I wanted to work with companies at the very earliest stages. And, uh, and that requires, I think, focus and bounded amounts of capital. And then I wanted to, frankly, I wanted to learn some new things and run some experiments. And that included, uh, you know, a really active seed and incubation program. So we we're incubating five companies pre-COVID in our, in our offices. And it includes building an operating team where I really think that we built the best operating platform for early stage B2B companies in the world. 
And yeah. so it, you know, I wanted to take everything I'd learned and then layer some new stuff on top. Thanks for that, Greg. One of the things we were excited to ask you was a lot of folks are saying C is the new A, um, A is the new B, so on and so forth. How much truth do you think there is to that? And what do you contribute that to? Broadly, I think it is true, is, is the answer. I think the, you know, if you go back, uh, so my partner, Mark Selko, started his second company in 2001. And I led the, the round at company formation that was a $2.5 million round. And we called that the Series A. So hmm. that round today is now called the seed, right? And the seed can be, you know, two or three or four or five million dollars. Uh, so I do think that we've basically created uh, a seed round, and in some cases, a pre-seed round. You know, in in addition. Now I think there are, there are two things that are happening. One is the the macro environment, which is there's just a flood of capital into equity markets in general, lots of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus. And so you see in a bull market, the hedge funds invest in late stage, the late stage guys do mid stage, the mid stage guys do early stage, the former early stage guys do seed. That's one. Uh, the second is that there actually are many more forms of capital. There are many more firms, there are firms in more places, there are founders in many more places. And I think that's a uh, that's a huge benefit to the economy, to the country, to the world, that there are a more diverse uh, set of sources of capital. What an interesting example about the $2.5 million Series A. Uh, that would be that would be an outlier uh, today, I, th I think it is probably a, a fair way to look at it. So one, one question I have for you, um, Greg, that I was really excited to ask you is you, you get you get to look at a lot of early stage and really specifically enterprise SaaS companies. And I think one of the biggest, I, I work at an enterprise SaaS company right, right now, AgentSync, and um, we are one of the, you know, having spent some years in the enterprise SaaS space, like just one of the biggest challenges is how do you find product market fit? Um, sometimes enterprise companies require more runway, there's more engineering resources required to really build something tailored that a Fortune 500 company may spend a million dollars on as an example. Can you maybe share like, as an investor, you have, especially as a seed stage enterprise investor, probably a higher risk tolerance than most as far as like what you're willing to, uh, what you look for. But sometimes maybe product market fit isn't always the way there if you're, if you're, one of, if you're the first money in. Can you maybe just talk about like some of the things you look for that are like principles that guide you as you think about investing in like early stage enterprise that, that aren't necessarily like revenue yet? Yeah. I mean, honestly, almost all of our investments happen before what I would call true pure mar product market fit. You know, there are levels of product market fit. So there may be a first level, but ultimately you refine that. So, you know, one of the things that I love about our approach and our organization is that all of our investors have operating experience. Uh, you know, three of us came out of product management backgrounds. And so we actually enjoy the process of doing customer discovery alongside founders who are just starting their companies. And so to me, the principle is, uh, real customer discovery, which is largely about asking questions. It's not about selling things. And it's asking questions like, how do you do this today? And how often does someone make a mistake? And how long does it take? And what are the costs of being wrong? And what systems do you have to integrate into? And when do you take data out of one system and manually key it into another? And you can start stitching together this question of how big a problem it is. And at seed stage, it really is, um, how big a problem it is and how good are the people. And then from seed to A, you're figuring out 
uh, does our proposed solution really work and really address it the way that we're trying to? And I, I think the one last thing that I'd say on it, and our, our, our uh, partner, Martina Lauchenko, is the one who I think has really uh, emphasized this and taught it to me, which is in customer discovery, you really have to ask the challenging questions, not the ones that just confirm what you already think, mm. but to really highlight um, what it would take for a customer to be willing to part with money and what mm. would the ideal solution look like? Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense in so much of what you just described as like running proper, you know, sales discovery process in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, and probably arguably the most important um, process there. So you, you alluded to some of this, but I, I was going to ask you next, uh, what are the things you look for in a founder? You talked about team and you talked about how big is the problem. I think the how big is the problem part makes a ton of sense. Can you maybe speak a little bit on like what you look for in a team, whether that's like exposure to a specific problem or like firsthand experience or prior founding experience, like, I'd love to maybe just from your perspective, get a sense for what are kind of like maybe like the hierarchy of, of uh, or the stack rank of needs as far as what you look for in founders. To me, uh, number one is drive. Number two is tenacity. Number three is actually, I'll, I'll call it curiosity. And that's a that's not one that is on very many people's lists, but I think um, curiosity about the problem, curiosity about the experience of customers, the willingness to ask the next question and go deeper into why it works the way it works and how it might be better. Uh, I think there's an element that comes with, um, that's good for customers, but also good for leadership, which is empathy. And then the last one I'd say is uh, judgment. And so to me, all of those things help us knit together, not just where the person is today, but who they might be as a CEO in two or three or four years. Because we're, we're not investing in who they are today. We're investing in who they are over the course of the business. So I don't really care about prior founding experience. I don't, uh, you know, I think it does, I care about insight into this problem. And there are people who got there by experiencing the problem. And then there are extraordinary founders like Brighton Shang from Aquabyte, who a year before he started the company, he knew nothing about aquaculture, but he had made him, he was a machine learning expert and he was looking for places to apply it. And he did enough customer research and discovery to figure it out over a year. And he became a native to the industry. And that's the kind of thing that we're looking for. How much of storytelling is incorporated in this? And the reason I asked, we had the founder of DemoStack who recently raised the round from Besmer. And he said, if there is one differentiator this time versus the past of why I was successful was the story of what I was telling. How much truth is, is that behind that statement from your viewpoint? Storytelling is important. It's unequivocally a good skill and it is a skill that can be built. But I also think it is completely insane for investors to base their decisions fundamentally on storytelling. That's how you end up investing in people like Adam Newman from WeWork. I think it is actually adverse selection. And what I want to know is people's actual substance and capability and knowledge and insight. Now, if one, one has to do enough storytelling to be able to raise money and to be able to hire people, right? And so it is, it is a leadership quotient, but I, I think people who invest principally in storytelling are foolish as investors. I appreciate your perspective as well as candor. Uh, and I got to ask, how does the variable of having maybe no revenue or being pre-product market fit change things uh, and change your perspective? Um, and before you answer that, Greg, I got to give a shout out to Indeed. 
Uh, for those of you listening, Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. All you got to do is post, screen, and interview and do it all within Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash scale. That is Indeed.com slash scale. Offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. All the time. So in our fund three, we made a total of 30 investments and 10 of them were at company formation. Okay. Right. Wow. So, so literally, no, you know, no revenue and not even really a sales pipeline. Right. Sometimes when people form the company, they've got a couple of people who've said, yeah, I'll probably be a pilot customer. Yeah. And so, you know, fundamentally we, um, you know, we, we, in those kind of situations, we actually, um, and I think you'll appreciate this. We say, let, Hey, let's go on some sales calls together. Love right. We'll, we'll ride along. And so what we end up trying to do is it's offered to bring an investor along. If you set up the meeting, yeah. but we say, great, tell us your ideal customer profile. We'll set up some meetings and that earns our way into the room. It helps us add value to the founder, regardless of whether we are investing, you learn incredible things sitting in a sales call, hearing what the objections are, seeing how someone deals with those objections, you know, hearing about whether people are, um, you know, potentially interested in buying the product. So that's one. The second is, I think in the context of understanding founders, understanding those five things that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we, we have to log some hours. We have to ask some what if scenarios. We have to see how they would respond if, in the context of unfolding the, the startup, facts change, right? And then there's a little bit of doing this and it's harder to do over Zoom. We used to do that over dinner, but I think we, you know, we literally sometimes say, hey, you, you, know, you grab a sandwich, I'll grab a sandwich, let's sit down and we'll do it over Zoom. And you know, tell me about how you grow up, tell me about your parents, tell me about your siblings, you know, when did you fail? What did you do when you failed? And I think that helps build a, a, a broader context for the human. Is, is there a recent pitch or a recent um, experience that really impressed you from a founder's perspective, like that other aspiring founders can kind of take? And if that was, if there is something inspirational about what that founder did, what are some like key takeaways that other people can implement? Like what are some actionable insight that you can provide? Recently invested in uh, a company called Cressicor. This is a founder, it's a SaaS company focused on trade promotion optimization for CPG companies, principally focused on mid-market high growth brands, which are all the growth in the industry. And the thing that I uh, think is so impressive, this is a group of young founders, never been a founder before, frankly, never really, uh, you know, barely had a job before, right? So in early 20s, not, not late 20s. And I think the, the thing that I uh, was so impressed is that it goes back to my comments about Brighton Chang, found a problem, started talking to people, built software, talked to more people, sold some product, you know, grabbed some people who uh, come from other uh, from other functional areas. So, a, you know, a young founder doesn't know, they, they may know one function, they may know product management, they may know engineering,
but they don't know sales or marketing or business development or finance or HR or leadership or the like, they just, it's impossible. And so I think the, you know, this is a group that broadly bootstrapped with very little capital and achieved extraordinary things. And, you know, 19 customers and proved price points and hired some people. And I think that, you know, to me, I am always impressed by people who can just pull that off. And then in storytelling, he just knit the story together. It wasn't some fanciful layer on top. It was just actually putting the story together. That's awesome. And I can just hear the excitement in your voice, Greg. Like it, it, it shines through as far as like what gets you fired up. Um, and that's, that's just like really cool to hear and probably a testament to why so many founders love working with you. So I actually want to double down or double click on what you said earlier about like, how do you build a relationship when you're primarily like going out to dinner? Like this is, this is a relationship when you're, you know, putting your, your money into a, a founder's business and, and, they're, and they're taking it and you guys are going on this journey together. And it's hard to build that relationship right now over Zoom. I'd love like you mentioned you grab a sandwich i grab a sandwich any other things that you guys have been trying to incorporate into relationship building with founders through this year now of like a remote period that you've learned and like found successful and feel like is going to become a core part of how Costa Noah operates. I mean, I'm sure we're all excited to go back to meeting in person, but I'd love to know if there's any other things that you've seen work really well, um, tactical or otherwise in building relationships remotely. Actually, so um, I think the, you know, one where people are local, we've gone on walks and done that in safe ways and you get to do some of that in, 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 but we've also, you know, we've made investments in Dallas and in New York City and in other places where we just haven't been. And I think the number one thing I'd say is that the things that used to be three hour dinners have to be three one hour meetings. You just have to break it up because no one wants to be on Zoom for three hours. Um, the second I would say is true whether we're face-to-face -face or not, which is authenticity, vulnerability, just being human. And I think the, uh, the uh, by the way, I know there are people on my side of the table who their mojo comes from swagger and it comes from an image and, it, and storytelling about who they are and you know everything's killing it and they're thumping their chest. And maybe it's just growing up in the Midwest, but that's just not me. So I'm best off if I just am frankly myself and I am comfortable talking about what's worked and not worked and comfortable talking about investments where we, uh, you know, some of them have been extraordinary. You know, we've got people like Alation and Quizlet in our portfolio. And we've got companies that didn't work where I'm still dear friends with the founders. And to me, that's a reflection of my value system, but it's also a reflection of, you know, sort of who I am at the core. And I think, you know, people wanna, they choose people who can help them win and they choose people that they trust, right? They trust from a capability and perspective, but they also trust from a partnership and integrity perspective. Because I know that for every founder, the, the company, might, you know, it might be a hundred percent or more of their net worth if they're in debt, if they have debt. And it is also the key to their career. So it is the crown jewels. And the question for me that, that I'm always trying to help them answer is in whose hand do you want to put it? So Greg, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. We've every minute of this is just like jam packed with insights that the closing question we love to ask our guests is, um, you know, if you were to go back in time, 
um, to little Greg playing ice hockey, uh, you know, in, in the twin cities and, and tap him on the shoulder, pull him off the rink and give him some advice, um, from, from Greg down the Bay area. What would, what would, what would one piece of advice be that you give to younger, younger, younger self? You don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I mean, I think I spent the early part of my career just um, aspiring and grinding and trying to prove myself and in trying to prove myself often showed up as a know-it-all or the like. And I think you can be great without being a know-it-all. You can be great because you're curious and you're on a learning journey and you always ask questions. And I think that frankly, it not only built, builds trust, but it, um, but it's a, uh, um, it makes you the kind of person that frankly people want to be around and people want to work with. And so that I think is a human lesson that transcends startups and transcends venture. Awesome. I, I love the advice. Well, Greg, this has been a blast. If founders who are listening just want to get in touch, I guess one, are you open to that? And two, what's, what's a good way to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely open to it. Uh, email is greg at costanoavc.com and I uh, absolutely will read it and respond. Awesome. Well, thanks, Greg. We really appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.